Uh, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, greetings. Uh, I hope you find time during this busy holiday season to pause, to consider, to reflect on the reality of the incarnation and draw comfort and joy from it. Uh, by way of taking a step in that direction, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The genealogy of Joseph, the adoptive father, father of Jesus Christ, traces for us the royal lineage of our Lord Jesus. So Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. I should say, in case you're wondering, I won't read the whole genealogy. Uh, I will read the first six verses, and then verse 17. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Hmm. 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we recognize this time of year, especially, uh, that you gave to us what was highest and best even your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him into our world to do that which we could not do for ourselves, to live a life of spotless obedience to you, to die in our place that we might be reconciled. Father, during the season, we consider your great gift, and we pray that this reality, which we may have heard again and again over the course of our lives, would stir us afresh to be grateful and joyful and to trust in you with all of our hearts, Father. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that though you are the eternal Son of God who dwelled for all eternity in unapproachable light, you freely came down to us here below. Uh, you, you became one of us, became a human being, lived among us, suffered to bring us to the Father. Lord, we praise and thank you and ask that your word this morning would pierce us and lead us to repent and trust more deeply in you. Uh, we pray that you'd prepare every heart this morning, Lord, to hear your truth. Amen. One of the more, more difficult features of Scripture, even for the most determined student of Scripture, are, of course, the genealogies. Uh, we tend to skim through them pretty quickly as we read through Scripture. It's not always a bad idea. Sometimes to keep forward progress, a little skimming is fine and good. Uh, the danger, however, in skimming through Matthew's Gospel is that we will miss something crucial about the birth of Jesus Christ. What Matthew's genealogy does is it shows us that the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus doesn't happen out of the blue. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Instead, the birth of Jesus 
has its roots in the Old Testament history of Israel and even the history of the world. Uh, The genealogy helps us to see the birth of our Savior as the full flowering of God's saving promises to Abraham and to David. And so we need to approach the birth of the Savior within this frame of reference. This is the culmination of God's redemptive program. This morning as we look at this genealogy, uh, we will note three things and consider three appropriate responses to three things this genealogy teaches. Number one, God is dependable, so trust Him. God is dependable, so trust Him. Number two, Christ came to bless us, so rejoice. Christ came to bless us, so rejoice. And number three, Christ came for sinners, so be humble. Christ came for sinners, so be humble. Well, when you approach this genealogy, uh, one of the most conspicuous things about it is the emphasis that falls on Abraham and David. You see them mentioned in the caption, the title of the genealogy. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ through, as I noted earlier, his adoptive father, Joseph. He's also descended on his mother's side from David. Uh, But here the focus is on Joseph's genealogy. Uh, In that caption, uh, we are told of David and Abraham. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those two individuals are emphasized. And in a sense, it's redundant because Abraham and David are also mentioned in the body of the genealogy. But by being included in this little title, uh, attention is drawn to them. And again, they're mentioned again in verse 17 right at the end, just uh, two names, Abraham and David. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. What Matthew wants us to see is that the great promises that God had made to these two men in the Old Testament, to David and to Abraham, these promises have come to fruition in Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation has been unfolding from the very beginning. His plan to bring wretched, weary sinners back to himself Uh, was initiated after the fall, and every year, step by step, century after century, God's redemptive program has been unfolding. But that plan of salvation took a massive step forward with the promise that he made to Abraham, and then it took another massive step forward with the promise that he made to David. And then, of course, climactically, these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So let's look first at the promise that God makes to King David, Israel's most illustrious king. Not a perfect king, mind you, as we'll see later, uh, but certainly in some ways the most distinguished. And David was a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, uh, indeed in the whole chapter, God enters into a covenant with David. He says, David, when you die, that's not going to be the end of your reign. There will be a descendant who will sit on the throne of Judah. There will be one to sit on the throne of Judah forever and ever. You will have a royal descendant who will reign for all time. 2 Samuel 7, 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's line will continue forever, and there will be a Davidic king on the throne of Judah for all time. Now, historically speaking... Uh, David's dynasty was pretty impressive. 
in Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia at the time, a decent time for a dynasty was about 100 years. Uh, David's la- uh, lasted more than 400 years. So by the standards of the ancient Near East, this was an impressive dynasty. However, even David's dynasty came to an end. In 540, uh, 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire sacked the ro- royal city of Jerusalem, and the last Davidic king was deposed. The line of David continued. There were still descendants of David, but there wasn't a descendant of David to sit on the throne of Judah. And what question do you think this created in the minds of the Jews? Well, they would have noticed the promise of God to have the Davidic king on the throne, and they would have noticed that the throne of Judah is desolate. They would have seen a discrepancy between God's promise and their circumstances. And and this created great anguish. Look at Psalm 89, for instance. The whole whole psalm is worth reading in this connection. Psalm 89, verses 44 through 45 and 49 say, You have made, speaking of David's descendants, You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Notice the burden of the psalm. Lord, you have said this, but we see that. What happened to the covenant that you made with David? And there are whispers, however, among the prophets that God is going to intervene and rectify the situation. So, for example, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6 say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. For about five long centuries, the Jews wait. The Jews wait for the promised Messiah. And Matthew signals to us that the waiting is done. With the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that Israel has been waiting for and indeed the whole world has been waiting for, that king has come who will bring the blessings of God. What the birth of Christ signals to us then is that the promises of God are utterly, totally, completely reliable. God said that he would put a descendant of David on the throne, and he has kept that promise. The birth of Jesus signals to us that every word that comes to us from the mouth of God is completely reliable. Every promise that he gives us will prove true. We need to hold on to that truth, because like the ancient Jews we often experience a certain discrepancy between what God's word says to us and what our life situation says to us. Now, let me add a qualification here. I want to be very clear about something. Our position, this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, is far, far better than that of the Jews. They, were, they lived in a time of anticipation. They were holding on to promises that God would act, but they didn't see the realization of those promises. We have seen the salvation of our God. We have seen the Son of God come down and die and rise again, and now he reigns in power. So our position is far more privileged than that of the ancient Jews. We want to be crystal clear about that. We live this side of the coming of Christ, and that is an amazing thing that we have seen the climax of God's salvation for the world. 
But nevertheless, our salvation isn't here in all of its fullness, is it? We still wait for that day when Jesus Christ will come back and complete our salvation. Uh, We live sometimes in the tension between what the Word of God says and what our experience says, just like the Jews. So for example, the Word of God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is saying, wherever you go, I will be with you. I will be your God. I will be your rock. I will answer your prayers. I will give you wisdom. I will uphold you. Look to me. Trust me, and I will deliver you. We say, yes, Lord. Amen. And then we look at our circumstances. Surprised, perhaps, by an unexpected and uh, painful downturn in our health. Surprised by how difficult marriage can be. Disabled, perhaps, by depression. Unable to fulfill our responsibilities to our spouse because we're so emotionally drained. And we look at our circumstances and they appear to contradict the word of God. And we say, Lord, you said you're going to be with me, but this is what my life is. It doesn't seem to harmonize. But when we find ourselves living in that tension between the word of God and our experience, our experiences seem to contradict the word of God. Faith means saying, Lord, I don't feel like you are with me. My circumstances don't cause me to feel like you are with me, but your word says you are with me. And so, Lord, I confess that you are with me. May not feel that way. Life may not look that way, but your word, Lord, is firmer than all of these things. The question is, what speaks more loudly in your life, your circumstances or the word of God? To walk by faith means that you cling to that word and you believe it even when circumstantially you might feel forsaken and that God is very far away. But by faith, you rise up above those circumstances and say, the Lord is with me because he said he will be with me. Not necessarily because I can point to some specific circumstance in my life that vindicates that claim. Do you believe God's word or are you listening to your circumstances? Our posture should be that of that little boy who goes to the dentist's office with his mother He doesn't understand why his mom is uh, having him undergo such miserable pain, but he knows that this woman cooked for him, clothed him, washed him, sang to him when she put him to bed. This woman loves him. He doesn't know why, but he trusts her, even when circumstances appear to contradict uh, that trust that he has. That's our posture. We should have a childlike faith that God is working for our good, that he is for us, even when we're in the dentist's office, metaphorically speaking. Three things to keep in mind in this regard, to strengthen our faith. Number one, remember that God's timing is not our timing. Five centuries they had to wait. By human standards, God's work in our lives can seem slow. Let me encourage you uh, by noting that God knows what he's doing There is a reason for his apparent slowness. Uh, uh, There's a quote, uh, it's sometimes attributed to the ancient historian Plutarch. There's a more modern expression expression of it in the uh, poet Wadsworth, and and it goes like this. Though the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. Though the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. Though God's work may by our standards be slow sometimes, it is effective. It gets the job done. That grain is ground fine. 
So trust in him even when he doesn't work according to your timetable. Second thing to remember, remember that God likes to work in counterintuitive, surprising ways that don't neatly fit in our framework. Consider the fact that you have Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. She's not Jewish. She's got a sexually complicated background. She becomes a a believer, becomes part of the people of God. You would not expect, though, to see Rahab in the genealogy of the Messiah. And yet, there it is. That's how God works, surprisingly, counterintuitively. And we can multiply examples from Scripture. Where God does things in seemingly strange ways to accomplish His purposes. So those things in your life right now that look like dead ends, like God, this is it's just here and it's painful and this is doing nothing, understand that what seems like a dead end to you is often a stepping stone to greater fruitfulness and maturity. God does things in strange ways sometimes. Trust that He knows what He's about. Even in those areas of your life where you have no idea how this is producing any good. Third thing to remember. What God wants for you is greater and higher than what you want for yourself. You tend to have low expectations. God is aiming at something better for you than you are probably aiming at for yourself. And when his purposes come to pass, it will be wonderful and amazing. Tim Keller puts it this way. When his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. God acts more wonderfully than we could ask or think. Is that what we see in this passage? The Jews are waiting for a physical descendant of David, and indeed he comes in Jesus. But it's not just a physical descendant of David who comes on the scene with the birth of Christ. God himself enters human history. God acts more dramatically, more satisfyingly than they could have ever expected. In the birth of Christ, God himself shows up. So, when you see the plans of God come to fruition, and even in your lives, uh, your life as an individual, you'll, we will often be amazed by how much more God did than we expected. Bottom line, trust Him. His word to us in Scripture, His promises are completely reliable. Nobody who trusts in His word will be put to shame. Second thing then to notice is that Jesus Christ brings to us the blessings of God, so we should rejoice. That's the other promise here. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, he gave the promise to David, but about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, he made a promise to Abraham. And we should note that these two promises are not independent of each other. They work together to bring to fruition God's redemptive purposes. But about 2,000 years before the birth of the Savior, Abraham was told this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says to Abram, who became Abraham, from your descendants, I'm going to wipe away the tears of this fallen humanity. I am going to restore people to my favor. I'm going to bring life out of death. This era of sighing and sorrow and death and judgment will give way to blessing, to reconciliation to God, to the renewal of all things. Now, we come to that promise given to Abraham, and if you've been paying attention to what's happening in the world and in the book of Genesis up to that point, 
that promise comes out of nowhere. If you look at that promise against the dark backdrop of everything that comes before, it is completely unexpected. Well, what happens before? Well, things start out well enough. You know, the book of Genesis, God creates the world and everything is as it should be. It's paradise. Man lives under the blessing of the Lord. Uh, We are told, for instance, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They lived, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise under the favor of the Lord. But God gave our first parents a prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All other trees are fair game. It's a world full of yeses. There's one no. Don't eat of that tree. And of course, being our father, Adam plucked the forbidden fruit. True to form. There's a family resemblance, isn't there? Uh, He plucks the forbidden fruit, defies God, and says, God, I am not going to live under your authority as creator and king. I'm going to do things my way. Rebels against the creator. And the result is the loss of blessing. When we turn to Genesis 3, we see God pronouncing curses, judgment. Through his disobedience, Adam opens the floodgates to every misery that we experience as human beings. We're told that because of him, the ground is cursed. There will be no more fruitful harvests. Thorns and thistles will the ground produce. Work now becomes toil. It grinds us down and is often frustrating and futile. You know what I mean. The work is cursed. The nature, our relationship to nature is cursed. Even relationships become strained. The husband and wife will now experience conflict in their marriage where there should have been peace and harmony. They will attempt to dominate one another. And we will die. Death is that final climactic aspect of God's judgment on Adam's sin. We will age, our bodies will grow weak, and one day we will be placed back into the ground from which we came. There's a sense in which there's an ironic twist on man's calling. Man was called to subdue the ground, to have dominion over it. But ironically, it's the ground that has dominion over man. Every time a dead body is placed into the ground, that's a symbol of our failure to be what God has made us to be as his image bearers, to have dominion over the earth, uh, and we depart. We have failed in our calling. And the supreme loss, as terrible as death is, the supreme loss, of course, is the loss of God. They are exiled from the garden. They are separated from his life-giving presence. The doors are slammed shut behind them. As a result of their disobedience, their relationship with the Lord is severed. And things don't get better in the next generation, in case you're wondering. What we discover as we read Genesis is that the virus of sin infects not just Adam and Eve, but every subsequent generation. Psalm 51 says that in sin my mother conceived me. King David is writing that psalm. No one is born morally neutral into this world. They are born with a heart bent towards opposition and rebellion against God. And so Genesis goes on to describe how the world becomes full of violence and brutality and God's image bearers kill one another and human life is cheap. And things reach a point where God's judgment falls on the earth. Mankind, except for the family of Noah, is wiped out. But Noah and his family are brought safely through. 
great, we think, a new beginning, except that we discover that the virus of sin, that black heart, continues even on the other side of judgment. So what do we expect? Sin is still there. As Noah's family begins to multiply on the face of the earth, sin continues to multiply with them. And everybody who's been reading Genesis up to that point, we expect curses, we expect judgment, we expect death. Like a shaft of light out of a dark sky, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless everybody. What? Where did that come from? All of the misery and ruin that has brought, been brought into the world through man's disobedience, I'm going to reverse all of this. I'm going to conquer death and bring life. I'm going to renew creation. Everything that sin has broken will be made new. I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve. And from that point forward in Scripture, we wait with a sense of expectation. How will God do this? Through whom will he do this? And when we get to Matthew's genealogy, and he emphasizes Jesus' connection to Abraham, he does that to underscore the fact that this at last is the blessing bringer. God's intention to renew all things, to bring sinners to himself, God's blessings will come to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. The one that a weary world has been waiting for has come and all things will be made new. As the hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, an obscure little hymn that you may never have heard of, uh, there's a line in there that's very theologically incisive. He writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He has the curses of Genesis 3 in mind. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever there is a curse resulting from sin, there also God's blessing will reverse it. There is a comprehensive renewal of all things that comes with Jesus. And we catch glimpses of this in Jesus' ministry, don't we? He goes to the broken body of a paralyzed man. He touches it, and that man is able to walk again. He goes to a leper who is from uh, the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, filled with running sores, and Jesus touches him, and he is clean. When confronted by the chaos of cre the creation, the violent storm, he speaks a word, and what happens? The sea's calm. Scarcity is conquered. Do you remember the scene where there are the hungry multitudes listening to Jesus, they don't have enough food? So he takes the bread, and he takes the fish, and he multiplies them. The, the age of scarcity, the age of thorns and thistles is coming to an end with Jesus. He's inaugurating a new age of full bellies. He turns water into wine. He has authority over death. Lazarus live and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. What we see in Jesus, what we glimpse in his ministry is that at every point he's beginning to reverse the effects of sin. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one that can put things right, and supremely he has the authority to forgive sin, Mark chapter 2. And those whom he forgives are forgiven indeed. Jesus has come to us loaded down, both hands full, with the gifts and blessings of God. But here's the thing. The blessings of God are not cheap. They are costly. Jesus was born that you and I might be blessed, that we might experience the favor of heaven. 
But the opposite side of the coin, if Jesus was born to bring us the blessings of God, that means that he was also born to endure the curse of God that we deserve for our disobedience. The root of all our misery, our alienation from God, death, all the trouble that we face is sin, our guilt before God. And unless someone does something about our sin, we will never get out of the nightmare situation that we see all around us. So Jesus has come to deal not with the symptoms of our problem, but the fundamental problem, which is sin. If sin is not taken away, then we languish under the curses of God. But if sin is taken away, then through Jesus we experience afresh the blessings of God. So Jesus came that he might be, experience the curse of the law and indeed be cursed on our behalf. Do you realize that's what you deserve? Scripture is clear that violators of the law deserve not God's blessing, but God's curse, misery, judgment, and punishment. And Jesus comes into the world to stand between us and a holy God and say, Father, let your wrath fall on me so it doesn't fall on them. And it's through his bearing our curse that we come to experience the blessings of God. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. How do we get blessings? Because Jesus is cursed. One of the most poignant statements of God's blessing in Scripture comes from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. We, we, we recite this passage when we do baby dedications at the church. And this passage says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What more could you have? One. That's all the blessings of God there in a nutshell. Set that statement of God's blessing alongside of a passage in Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes at the cross. Think of number six, and then read Psalm 22 with, that, with the blessing I just read in the back of your mind. Here's what Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Compare those two. Number six, God draws near, but Jesus says, I'm forsaken. Number six, God answers prayer, but Jesus says, you're not hearing me. Number six speaks of peace. And Jesus speaks of not being able to find rest. At the cross, our Lord and Savior, was cursed in our place. He didn't simply endure the physical anguish of the cross. He endured exile from the life-giving presence of the Father. There's a sense in which he was cast out of the garden. He was separated from the Father, and he drank the curses of God until there were no curses left for us. And having paid that price in full, he rose again triumphantly on the third day, so that all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ experience not the curses of God, but his blessings. This morning, God says to each one of you, there is nothing you need do to procure my blessings. 
My son Jesus has done it all. Trust in him and be blessed. We, we who have come to put our faith in Jesus Christ that need to see ourselves as blessed. We have experienced the forgiveness of our sins, peace with God, the hope of a restored world. We experience the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. Day by day, we are becoming more like Jesus and empowered to walk in faithfulness. Do you view yourself as fundamentally, in the midst of all of life's troubles, as blessed? That's the trouble with us. Very often, we don't. Uh, what stands out as you look at your life very often? All the things that have gone wrong, right? That person has more than I do. Their marriage seems to be flourishing a little bit more. Oh, here we go again. The kids are getting sick. It's going to mess up my Christmas plans. Oh, right. Oh, this is an unexpected expense. I thought I was going to have a little bit of financial wiggle room to maneuver. And again, water heater goes out. Right. Uh, fuel, the we, we chafe financially. And very often, when we look at our lives, what are we most aware of? These things. So what's the result? We're joyless. A lot of self-pity. We complain. It was kind of a low-grade frustration. That's what happens when what is most obvious about your life are the challenges and miseries and troubles. You know what this text is inviting us to do? It's inviting us to count our blessings. To take a step back and go, I can't believe how good I have it. The, the deepest need that I have as a person is not money to buy gifts, is to be forgiven before my creator. Jesus has met that need. God is my father. I am his. He is mine. Heaven is my home. I belong to the people of God, the church. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. My life will not go get worse and worse. It will get better and better for all eternity and all because of what Jesus has done. How can you recognize that and still grumble and complain and walk in joylessness? Many of us would do well to take a step back and, as I say, count our blessings. And I mean the blessings that Jesus Christ has procured. And when you do that, you find yourself feeling a little more content with things, a little more at peace, a little more ready to serve others instead of needing to be served by others. We get there by considering the mercies we've received. If you walked with Jesus any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you've had seasons where you just feel like you're, you're frustrated with your life. Kids are not the way you want them to be. Work's not going well. You're weary. There's a blanket of weariness that covers everything, of course, after past a certain age, right? So you, you grumble and complain, uh, and then you get a hold of yourself. But what am, I, what am I doing? God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. He's interceding in heaven for me. In just a little while, I'm going to go to be with him. Everything is good. I need to be, I need to be more thankful. I need to rejoice. I, I'm not honoring Christ by this. So you, you've probably had those moments. I've had plenty of those moments. Uh, how, how do we get, snap out of the grim, joyless existence that we're sometimes tempted to walk in? Well, by remembering what Matthew teaches us about the blessings of Jesus Christ. Count your blessings this holiday season. Remember that the blessings of Abraham have come to you. Third thing then, final thing, that we notice in uh, this genealogy is that uh, we should be humble because Jesus came for sinners. We should be humble because Jesus came for sinners. As you read through this genealogy, one thing that stands out is that the focus is on the fathers. The focus is on the fathers. Uh, 
X was the father of Y, X was the father of Y, and so on. You don't have many references to mothers at all, except four references to four, if we want to say it this way, mothers of Jesus. Now, if you were compiling a genealogy for the Messiah, God's promised king, what women would you include in that genealogy? Surely you'd include the great matriarchs of Israel. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, who, while not perfect, still have a certain gravitas. These are the great women of Israel. Interestingly, their names don't appear. Whose names appear? Rahab. Not even a Jew. So Canaanite. And as I say, a prostitute, sexually complicated history, became a believer. Uh, you have Tamar, probably a Canaanite. If you remember the story, it's a sordid story. Uh, she wants offspring, and she dupes Judah into uniting with her by dressing like a prostitute. And that's where Perez comes from. You know, God uses that, as we see in the genealogy, but still morally murky. And then, of course, she's not even named. There's a reference to Bathsheba. But she's not referred to as Bathsheba. She's referred to as the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, she may well have been uh, a Hebrew, an Israelite. But intriguingly, David sired a son who would become king of Israel, not with his own wife, but with the wife of another man. And so this, this underscores Bathsheba's involvement with that uh, sexual immorality. It underscores David's moral failure. He not only committed adultery with another man's wife, but he also was responsible for shedding innocent blood. And so you have, many of these women that are included with the exception of Ruth have complicated pasts. Uh, there are, it seems like Matthew goes out of his way to underscore David's sin. Why would he do that? Why include these names and not others? And one reason is that these are precisely the sorts of people that Jesus came into the world for. Jesus is the savior of sinners. He came for those who have complicated histories, who have made terrible decisions, who have fallen short. He came for those who have need of a savior, not for people who have made all the right choices in life because no one has. The point of this genealogy is that Jesus identifies with precisely these kinds of people. It's a tremendous source of encouragement to you today and to me. However wretched you are and however far you have sunk, the love of Jesus for sinners goes deeper still, meaning that there's hope for all of us. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He brings us to God and restores the relationship that we ourselves could not heal. It should humble us. We're all tempted to think of ourselves more highly than we should and to think less of others than we should. We're tempted to have an overinflated sense of our own importance because of our wealth, education, abilities, people we know. Any little advantage in life, we take that little microscopic advantage and we blow it up. And we tell ourselves, I'm something because of that. And we treated others with contempt as a result. I remember listening to an interview with Richard Burton, the late Richard Burton, the actor, Welsh actor. And he was talking about his upbringing in Wales and uh, Welsh miners. Uh, these were rugged men. They worked hard. And they had a certain kind of reverse snobbery for those who were above them socially. And Burton said, uh, they, looked, uh, they looked down on others from below. 
which I thought was a great way of capturing reverse snobbery. You can be a snob in reverse, right? You can resent those who have things you don't have, abilities you don't have. Oh, look at them showing off, right? So no one, and my point is no one is immune from this. And of course, there's the more traditional kinds of snobbery where you have things others don't have, and so you look down your nose at them. All of us are tempted by this. Well, understanding that you are saved by the undeserved grace of God pops the pride balloon, keeps it from swelling up further and further. You didn't save yourself. Nobody saves themselves. Jesus saves them. You are a beggar saved by the mercy of another. And when you recognize that, how can you look down on the person next to you who's also a beggar saved by the grace of another? At the foot of the cross, we are all equals. We are all desperate sinners, couldn't lift a finger to save ourselves. Jesus did it all for me and for you. What is there to be proud of? There's a lot to be thankful for, but what is there to be proud of? Understanding the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ should humble us. Consider the fact that nothing less than the death of the Son of God was sufficient to heal you. How bad were you? Nothing less than the death of the eternal Son of God was sufficient to make you clean. That bad. Should humble you. Cause you to be less contemptuous of others. Have a maybe slightly smaller, more realistic view of yourself. Let me note also, I, I suggested that perhaps one of the reasons these women are mentioned is because of their moral struggles, to put it lightly, uh, because of their sin, David's sin. But I think there's another reason. It's very important. These women are mentioned because three out of four, at least, and by the way, Ruth is an exception to this thing I said about sexual immorality. But three out of four of these women, at least, are outsiders. They're not Jews. So Tamar, uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Rahab, Canaanite. Tamar, probably also Canaanite. This is very important. Because as we saw, God's promise to Abraham was not that just that he would bless the Jews. It's that the whole earth would be blessed through the coming of a descendant of Abraham. That includes outsiders. Jesus came into the world to bring people who at first glance have no business being among the people of God, those people he wants to bring into the people of God. And some scholars note that it seems like Matthew has organized his gospel in a way that emphasizes this theme. It begins with the idea that God's promise to Abraham will go through the nations, outsiders are going to be brought in, and then how does Matthew's gospel end? Great commission. Go out to the nations, preach the gospel, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. In other words, those who receive the blessings of the Messiah and Jesus Christ are themselves called by Jesus to go out into the world to be instruments of blessings to other people. We're not called to just selfishly absorb all the blessings of God and be, be content with that. We're called to be blessed, yes, in Jesus, but having been blessed, we're called to scatter in the world and become instruments by which those who are still in darkness come to know Christ. That means we should be thinking creatively, prayerfully, uh, to engage our non-Christian neighbors in all kinds of ways that they might know Jesus. Christians are meant to be other-oriented, not just other-oriented towards other believers, but other-oriented towards like the unbelievers in their lives. So what does that look like practically to take initiative, to make Jesus known to others? Well, hospi hospitality is not a bad place to, to begin. Get to know non-Christians, invite them into your home, grab a coffee, go to a park where your kids play, other people's kids play, you know, start a conversation, ask questions. 
What's the meaning of life? Maybe you don't start there. Maybe a few pegs below, but get, get there eventually. Ask questions. Uh, be interested in your coworkers. Serve them. Uh, at a minimum, start by praying for unbelievers. Are you at least praying for the non-Christians in your life? Right? To be a recipient of blessing means that there's also responsibility to be a giver of blessing. How can you do that this holiday season? What steps, big or small, can you take to help nudge someone towards Jesus Christ? I want to end with this challenge that comes from J.I. Packer. I think it's a challenge worth reflecting on. Uh, Packer writes, So many Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. This is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor spending and being spent to enrich their fellow men, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others. We who have experienced the love of God in Christ, his blessings, also have a responsibility to consider how we might help others experience that same blessing. Good time of year for, for, for you to consider these things, people, uh, tend to be receptive this time of year to talking about ultimate things, talking about Jesus. Consider how you might, big way or small way, help nudge someone towards the blessings that you have come to enjoy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give praise and thanks that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, uh, you took the initiative to come to us, and you did all that was needed to bring us to the Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you, and we pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would increasingly repent of our selfishness and increasingly reflect you and put the needs of others first for your glory and their good. Amen.